Joseph desires to be released from his chains. It seems as though he's been forgotten. How could this be part of God's plan? Joseph sat in a cold, dark cell for a crime that he never committed. Feeling forgotten by his friends and perhaps forgotten by God, Joseph sits hopeless in this jail. But after two years of waiting in bondage, something is about to change. Joseph is given the chance to interpret dreams for the Pharaoh of Egypt. Crossroads, so great to have you joining us online. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. We know this is a little bit different means, but we're thankful for the opportunity. Our team has done a, a, a great job, worked hard to be able to bring this right to your living room or wherever you are watching this, hopefully in your PJs as a family, just enjoying this time of worship and celebration together. I did want to remind you, you can register while you're there. Make sure you let us know who you are. Register who you are there on our online campus, and then make up a name for yourself and, and go into the chat and, and make sure you're chatting with others who are involved. Uh, and this is a great way to connect. Give yourself any cool name you want to. Uh, I know last week we had like the Incredible Hawk and we had Mad dog and we had uh, Queen Elsa and everybody else. So make up a name and be a part of that. I did want to mention to you, we are still uh, kicking off this weekend our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And so we hope you'll join us. We don't think there's any better time uh, for us to join together in prayer and fasting. And I want to remind you that fasting literally is focus. Fasting is a moment where we pull back from something to really press in to who Christ is. And so this is an opportunity for us to really focus on the goodness of God and the provision of God. And so uh, I don't think there's any better time as, as we're talking about quarantine and sickness and pandemics. I don't think there's any better time to say, let's pause and let's really just set some things aside and really focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And so we want to invite you into that journey over the next 21 days. For you, maybe it's food. For others, maybe you're going to fast from social media or maybe even media in totality. And so I want to just encourage you, pick something and focus on Christ. You can grab our, our 21 Days of Prayer and Fasting guide on our website as well as on our app. They're, both of them are readily available, and you can take those and watch those and follow along with those, and we'll keep you updated in the weeks to come as we journey together, uh, as we kick off this weekend, 21 days of prayer and fasting. I want to encourage you, don't let this time to be a moment to disengage. I believe God is at work even in a pandemic, uh, that God has great plans and great things in store in our souls if we just open ourselves up to what God wants to do. And so don't disengage. This is not a moment to disengage. This is a moment to re-engage, to refresh, and to refocus in who God is in our life. This is a moment to start, hit restart and say, you know what, I think my purpose in life really is the glory of God. And so uh, this is a chance to do that. If you want to take your Bibles out with me and turn to Genesis chapter 45, Genesis chapter 45, and uh, it, whether you're pulling that up on a Bible or on your electronic device Bible, we'd love to have you join us. Uh, by the way, I did want to remind you, 
great opportunity to hashtag. Uh, don't forget to hashtag Crossroads at Home as you're joining us online. Crossroads at Home at Crossroads Wired. We love to hear from you. Send a picture of you joining together. Let us know that you're worshiping with us. Genesis chapter 45. We've been journeying through this story of Joseph. We call it Dream Killer. And we've been journeying through Joseph's story. And as I think about Joseph's story, I can't help but to think about one of my favorite characters that I used to watch in cartoons. And this is an old character. In my day, I had to watch reruns, but I loved the cartoons with the Roadrunner. Like, Roadrunner was hilarious. I loved watching Roadrunner, but, but what I loved about Roadrunner wasn't actually Roadrunner. It was actually who chased him. Uh, it was uh, Wild E. Coyote. It was the chase that the Coyote had against Roadrunner. They didn't say anything but the whole episodes were phenomenal. They were hilarious as Wild E. Coyote would chase uh, Roadrunner every place. Now, what's interesting about that cartoon is it was one of the longest-running cartoons in cartoon history. Uh, I mean, it actually started back in 1949. Believe it or not, the cartoon uh, of Roadrunner started back in 1949. Wile E. Coyote was a part of that, was an integral part of that entire show. And it ran for 68 entire years. Now, I want you to think about that. Wiley Coyote, for 68 years, chased Roadrunner. And he used every tool at his disposal. I mean, he used anvils and water balloons and fans and bird seed, grease, boulders, bumblebees, invisible paint. He even had missile launchers later in the episodes. He did everything he could to catch the Roadrunner. But if you've ever watched those cartoons, you know, in 68 entire years, how many times does he actually catch the Roadrunner? Zero. Never. He never catches the Roadrunner. The Roadrunner always gets away. Just at the moment when you think he, he has him, while E. Cody has the Roadrunner at his disposal, the Roadrunner escapes. He gets away. It's like he's invisible and cannot be caught. You know, when I think about the story of Joseph, I think of Wild E. Coyote. I mean, here's Joseph who begins the story as his father's most significant and prized son. He is his father's favorite son. His, his father gives him a coat of many colors or a coat with long sleeves. But he's hated by his brothers. He then has two dreams. He has dreams that his brothers would actually bow down to him. In fact, his father and mother would bow down to him. And they hated him all the more, so much so that he went from great privilege in his father's house to a pit that his brother's throwing him in. Uh, while in the pit, he is then sold as a slave to the Ishmaelites who sell him eventually to the Egyptians. And he then raises up in a man named Potiphar's house. He was the captain of the guard of Pharaoh's army. So now he's in Egypt and he's now got position under Potiphar. But what happens? Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him. And Joseph, in great righteousness, doesn't give in to the temptation, but he runs from it. He actually does what is right. He honors God and honors Potiphar. But now we have a false accusation. Potiphar's wife goes to her husband and says, hey, he made a pass at me. You should throw him in prison. You have brought cursing upon me. And what happened, Potiphar has no choice but to throw Joseph into prison. You find him going from position to the pit, from the position of Potiphar's house, the privilege of Potiphar's house, 
to now prison. While in prison, he has two friends that show up. They are workers for Pharaoh, a cupbearer and a breadmaker. They have dreams. They have dreams. And Joseph interprets their dreams. One is going to die. One is going to actually be restored to his position, the cupbearer. And it says when they get out, it happens exactly the way Joseph predicted. But the cupbearer forgets Joseph. Joseph is forgotten for two whole years in that prison. But then all of a sudden, Pharaoh has dreams. Pharaoh has two dreams as well, a set of dreams that there was seven good cattle and seven good ears, but they are eaten by seven frail cattle and seven frail ears of corn. And so he can't find anybody to interpret them. So he calls and finds out that Joseph is one, a Hebrew, a young man who can now interpret dreams. And so he calls him out, and what happens is Joseph then becomes the second in command of Egypt. Everything is undone. Joseph now has full authority during this famine, full authority during this time of abundance. And it says that Pharaoh gives Joseph everything. Gives him clothing, gives him position, gives him prosperity, gives him even a family. And Joseph has two kids. His first kid is named Manasseh, which means to forget. And his second son is named Ephraim, which means I have been blessed in the land of my affliction. We said the last time that in this story, Joseph here is making a statement. He is saying, I have forgotten what has been done to me. I have forgotten the dream that I had in chapter 37. I don't need it anymore. I'm in the second in command of Egypt. I don't need my brothers. I am okay. God, I don't want to go back through this journey. I am okay. Good, and we said last time that, that in this moment, you're not always positioned to see God's eternal purposes. You're not always positioned to see what God is doing behind the scenes. Because right in that moment, right in the moment where he says, forget the dream, forget the dream that I had, we find his brothers showing up in Egypt. For you and I, we don't have dreams like Joseph. But we have dreams about our lives, dreams of, uh, of, of a house, dreams of cars, dreams of uh, a family, dreams of a spouse, uh, dreams of kids, dreams of success and money, right? These things aren't in and of themselves wrong, but we have these dreams, but they don't actually seem to come to fruition. They seem over and over again to die. This is Joseph's story. And Joseph then has to turn his eyes to God's eternal purposes. I want to pick it up, the story in Genesis chapter 42. Go back a few pages to verse 6 as we set the tone for what we're going to find in chapter 45. Genesis chapter 42, verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. By the way, here we have the dream of chapter 37 taking place once again. Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them, but treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Notice, he had forgotten the dreams, but now he remembers the dreams. See, he had set the dreams aside, but now they've come back. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Here it was, seven years of abundance, two years now of famine, and Jacob, Joseph's brothers show up. Jacob, his father, sends them to Egypt to get goods. 
And all of a sudden, he's face to face with the ones who kicked off this series of, of significant events in his life. When I think about Joseph's brothers, I can't help but to think of Murphy's Law. Whatever will go wrong, does go wrong. Anything that can go wrong seems to go wrong. And these are the brothers that kicked off Murphy's Law, or if you will, Joseph's Law in this story. They kick off all of the pain and the agony and the frustration and the emptiness and the questions that Joseph is now experiencing. And here they are before his face. It had been 20 years since he had seen his brothers. Now I want you to ponder that. A lot of things happen over 20 years, two decades. 20 years he had not seen his brothers. We're talking about he now has a family. He now has kids. His brothers are older. He now has position. Right, everything has changed. 20 years changed a lot. And what we find from the text is very clearly that Joseph has moved on. See, what once seemed to be wrong to him now doesn't seem so bad. He's good. What once kept him awake at night now doesn't seem to bother him. What once made him frustrated now doesn't even come to his mind. Why? Because his brothers were out of sight, out of mind. His brothers were gone. The dream had been killed. But all of a sudden, here are his brothers. All of a sudden, God throws a curveball. And this is the point. As we look through this story, is that we find that when we cannot understand what is happening, we ought to push pause and press into God's providence. What we're going to find Joseph do in this moment is he is going to rightly press pause and he is going to push into God's providence. He's going to, he's going to push the pause button and press in to God's providence. Now, I love the pause button on our TVs or on our our. Players. I love hitting pause in movies. Uh, in fact, my, my boys love to watch the Star Wars movies. And I don't know about you, I, I think Star Wars are really great. I know they're kind of historical. I remember uh, when I was younger watching them and binge watching all the Star Wars uh, at the time that we had. Uh, but as they've come out with more, I got to be honest, I can't follow them. And so whenever we watch the Star Wars movie, it never fails that I have to say, hey, can you pause it for a moment? And then have them explain something to me. Hey, can you pause it for a moment? i got to understand this. Hey, can you pause it for a moment? I have no clue who that character is. I want you to think about this for a moment. Joseph here is wrecked with the reality that he did not expect. He is wrecked by the idea that for 20 years he hadn't seen his brothers. Now he was in a great position. God seemed to have taken care of him. He names his son, forget it, forget the dream. And now here are his brothers right before his eyes. And what we find is Joseph rightly presses pause. He begins to deliberate. He begins to put his brothers through a series of tests. And I believe Joseph is doing this in order to figure out where things stand, what's really happening, what's really going on. He's trying to understand what is God's plan in this moment. He presses pause on his emotions and his potential reactions. So he says, you know what, you guys are spies. If you read on, it actually takes them and he puts them into prison for three days. He puts them into prison. Now imagine what, what, what Jacob is, Joseph is doing is he's buying time. He's trying to figure out what to do. And so he throws them into prison for three days. At the end of three days, he decides that he is going to tell them to go get their youngest brother. Now remember, Joseph knows that there's a youngest brother who is his own whole brother. All of these are, are half-brothers. 
they weren't the same mom, but his youngest brother is named Benjamin. Benjamin would have been three years old when Joseph was thrown into a pit. Now he would be 23 years old. And so he says, I want you to go back and get my younger brother. Uh, and they're like, wait, we, we just can't do that. But he takes one of the brothers and he puts him into prison. He takes one brother and holds him back. That's what we pick up chapter 42, verse 21. Take a look with me. It says, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They're talking about Joseph here. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So Joseph's asking questions. He says, I want you to go get your youngest brother and bring it back to me. And now they feel distressed. And Reuben answered him and said, did I tell you not to sin against the boy? Didn't I tell you not to sin against Joseph? But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Here it is. We're now having the judgment of God on us for what happened back with Joseph. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. This is Joseph. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So he says, go get your younger brother. I want to see him. Now, they don't know it's Joseph yet. And they're like, what have we done? We can't bring our younger brother. Our father is going to be distraught. And this is God getting back at us. And he says, I'm going to hold Simeon captive while you go back and bring your younger brother. So what Joseph does is he fills their bags and gives them their money that they brought to buy goods with back in their bags. And we find this statement in verse 28 of chapter 42. It says, and he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And this, at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? You get the perspective of his brothers. They believe God is after them. So Joseph puts some money in their bags. They're heading back. They're traveling back. They find the money. And they go, wait a minute. We bought goods. We spent the money. But there it is. And they say, God is trying to get back of us. So they go back home and they say, Dad, here's the deal. Jacob, here's the deal. Uh, we've got to take your youngest son back with us. We have to. We've got to go get Simeon. Jacob is distraught. He says, now I've lost two sons. There's Simeon who's in prison in Egypt. There's now, uh, there's now Benjamin who has to go back with you. You can't do this to me. I've lost one son. Now I've lost another son. Now you're asking me to lose a third son. And what's interesting in the story is Judah. One of the brothers, each of these brothers, who said, well, just kill him. Just kill Joseph. Now, 20 years later, he says, no, 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 Father, let my youngest brother's blood be on my hands. I will protect him. I will bring him back to you. We have to take him lest, man, we're going to be distraught. We're going to be left out in the cold. We're not going to have goods to survive. Let's take our younger brother, but it'll be on my head if he doesn't come back. We find a really everything changing in this story. So they get back. They get back and Joseph throws them a big party. They think this party, this meal that they're about to have is because Joseph is about ready to kill them. They believe they're being set up to be put to death. But what we find is actually God is at work. Right? Jo Joseph knows exactly what he's doing. So they come and bow before him. And I want to pick it up in chapter 43 and verse 29. It says, now he sees Benjamin for the first time, and he lifted up his eyes, and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son, 
Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother. This is his whole brother. His compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and he came out controlling himself. He said, serve the food. And so they have this meal. Here is Benjamin. Joseph is blown away. This is his brother. He hasn't seen him since he was three years old. All of this is now just bombarding Joseph. And all of a sudden, he throws this meal. He throws a meal together. By the way, the Egyptians didn't even sit with the Hebrews. They were separated. Then we come to chapter 44, and Joseph gives them one more test. He sends them away, but he puts inside of their bags of goods a silver cup. This silver cup probably was given from Pharaoh to Joseph. It was probably a prized possession that reminded people of Joseph's status. And he takes the silver cup, and he puts it in the bag of Benjamin his brother. He then sends them on their way back to their father. What happens? Well, they get so far and Joseph sends the servant to say, what have they done to me? They've done evil for my good. And he sends the servants out to them and they find and bring them back and he takes them captive and he says, what have you done for me? I've been good to you. And they say, no, please, no, we've never done this. We would never steal from you. And then we pick up the story in chapter 45. All of a sudden, everything comes to a head. Now, before we dive into chapter 45, I want you to realize what's happening here. In this entire moment, Joseph is deliberating, right? It would have taken five or six days to travel from Canaan to, to Egypt. This would have been back and forth multiple times. Joseph here is deliberating. He's trying to understand what is going on. In fact, we see multiple times that he stops, he escapes, and he weeps. What we find him doing is vacillating between revenge and mercy. He is going back and forth. Do I get revenge? Do I pay them back? Or do I show them mercy? And he's wrestling with what God is doing in the midst of this. Can I tell you, every character of this story runs against the providence of God. Joseph here hits Paul's. He pushes Paul's on the button. He deliberates for a while. He takes some time to get to know what's happening but then he presses into the providence of God. Every character is dealing with the providence of God. Now when I say providence, what does that mean? Providence is different than sovereignty. Sovereignty says that God has the right and the power to do all that he decides to do. That God has the right and the power to do all that he decides to do. But providence is different. In fact, providence comes from a Latin word, provide. Provide should sound familiar. It's where we get the word provide. Pro, which means beforehand, or uh, the idea of on behalf of, pro, and then vide, which literally means to see in Latin. In other words, it means to see beforehand. But what's interesting is our word provide doesn't mean to see beforehand. Our word provide means to, to give someone what they need. It, it takes it one step further. It's to supply what is lacking, to give support and sustenance. It is to provide for somebody. So what's the point? How do we see God's providence here? Because it's not just that God sees, it's that God is acting. See, when God sees, he sees too. When he's seeing, he always views it with doing in mind. Or can I say it this way? Where God patrols, he controls. Where God sees, he provides. So God is all-powerful sovereignty, but God is all-provider, all-powerful, all-provider providence. 
He's provident. And here we see God providing safety for the brothers, provision for Jacob in Canaan, but also providing some truth to this situation to Joseph. They run up against the providence of God. Sometimes when we don't see that God is providing, he is providing. God is all powerful, but he's also all provider. He sees it and he gives it. Take a look at what happens in chapter 45. We see that, that Joseph comes face to face with providence. Chapter 45, verse 1, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, making everyone go out from me. He says, make everyone go out from me. He, he says, get out of here. i got to take a moment. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. I mean, he is crying so hard that everybody's hearing it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. Notice, he says, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. It says they were troubled. I love this word in Hebrew. It's the word bahal, which means afraid, terrified. I mean, they were afraid beyond control. They hear this, and it says, man, they were dismayed. They were overwhelmed at his presence. They didn't, they didn't, didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to react. They didn't know how to respond. And here's Joseph. He has them now firmly in his grasp. He can say and do whatever he wants to say and do. I mean, he's been hated, he's been envied, he's been betrayed, he's been sold into slavery, he's been falsely accused, he's been unfairly accused. If he wanted to, right now, he could put them to death. Right now, he could torture them. Right now, he could throw them into jail. He could have any of those things, anything he desired to do, he could do in this moment. He had the right to be bitter. He had lost 20-some years of his life. He had the right to be bitter. In fact, I would dare say the temptation to get rid of them would have been great, but I want to show you what he runs up against. He runs up against the providence of God in this moment, what God is providing behind the scenes. Take a look at what he says, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please, and they came near to him. Now, verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I want you to see in these verses... Over and over again, five times in six verses, Joseph says, God did this. You didn't send me here. You didn't do this to me. You weren't the one working out your plan. It was God that was doing this. Now, I want you to realize something. I want you to think about the dreams we have about life. Joseph, the dream was his brothers would bow down before him. It's come true. But it hasn't come true in the way that he thought. It's not the thing that matters now. 
See, what he realized is as he looked back, as he deliberated, as he pressed pause and now pushed himself into the prophets of God, what he came to the conclusion was is that God was the one who was ultimately doing and providing. God was provident. In fact, we could say it this way. That God is the dream killer. God was the one who was killing that dream so much so that, that Joseph says, hey, I forget it. Manasseh, forget the dreams, forget my brothers, forget what's happened to me, I am good, I don't need it. God is the dream killer. God was the one who was killing this dream. It's the single most distinguishing aspect of, aspect of this entire story where Joseph gives his opinion about what was taking place behind the scenes. We have these dreams about life. Could it be that God is the dream killer? Now you might say, well, why? Why would God do this? Why would God go through this? Let me give you some thoughts as to why God would do this. Why does God kill dreams? Now this is a, this is a major point, right? This, this kind of goes against the fray of our culture that says God is the dream giver. God is the dream maker. God is the dream weaver. No, in this story, God actually is the dream killer. He is the one behind the scenes killing this dream. And there's a reason why he does this. And I want to give you three thoughts as to why he does this. Number one, God kills our dreams to empty us of everything but himself. God kills our dreams to empty us of everything but himself. Remember back in chapter 37? I mean, jo Joseph was this, this privileged, snotty-nosed little brat. Now, nothing wrong with some of the things he did, but his father gives him a coat of many colors or a coat with long sleeves, and he wears it everywhere. And then he has two dreams. His brothers hate him, and so he shares the dream. He says, hey, you know, I've got this dream, and, and uh, you know, they're going to be bowing down. And his brothers, it says, hated him all the more. What does he do? He says, oh, i got another dream for you. The sun, moon, and stars are going to bow down to me. By the way, yeah, you guys are going to bow down. Uh, I just want to remind you of that. We get this perspective that there's a bit of pride in Joseph. Now, we, we don't see that laid out. He's trusting God throughout the journey. He's journeying with God faithfully, but what God is doing is emptying his hands of this dream. God is making a way for this dream to become reality by emptying him of what could take that dream captive. Of course, Joseph, all through this story, has ideas and even probably suggestions as to how this dream could look. But here's what God does. God brings moments of pain in order to empty him of these dreams. See, God kills these dreams to empty us of everything except himself. See, Joseph gets to the point where he can say, God, it was you. God, you are the one involved. God, you are the one that knows what you're doing. God, you are the one. See, pain has a way of teaching us what pleasure never could. Pain has a way of teaching us what pleasure never could. If God just gives us dreams and makes them come true, it never teaches us as good as pain does. And so what does God do? God empties us in order to truly fill us. Now, by the way, I remember when I played basketball in third and fourth grade. It was my first year playing basketball, and we were practicing, and we had some players that were pretty good. They had played before. Uh, but I never played, and, and, and I was pretty fast, but I couldn't dribble very well. So when I dribbled, I dribbled with my head down. And if you've ever played basketball, you don't want to dribble with your head down. You want to dribble with your head up so you can make a pass or take the shot. But I would dribble with my head down. So my, my coach 
got me these goggles. They were, they were like goggles that you had to wear. And what they did is they blocked you from being able to see the ball. And he would have me dribble around the court. While everybody else was practicing, I had to dribble around the court not looking at the ball. And I had to switch hands. And so what would happen in the beginning, it was frustrating. Right? I would try to dribble the ball and I couldn't see it. So I would try to lean my head down to see it all the more. And he'd say, hey, you can't look. You can't try to look. These goggles blocked it. And they were uncomfortable. And I remember thinking, why? Why do I just want to play basketball? Like, why am I going through this uncomfortable moment? I just want to play ball. I just want to dribble and shoot and pass. And he said, hey, I can let you loose. I can let you go dribble the ball. You're going to get it stolen every single time because you're not seeing anybody else. You're not seeing where the defender is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make basketball more enjoyable for you by bringing a bit of pain, by bringing a bit of uncomfortability, by bringing a bit of obstacle. And what I'm going to do is use this to help you be a better player. And that coach was phenomenal. And he taught me how to dribble and dribble well. See, your pain could be God prying open your hands to remove something that has been more important than him. It could be God prying away from your earthly dreams things that will never satisfy you. Why? So that you see him alone, you trust him alone, you obey him alone. See, so many of us are prying in our life to things that we think life should be about. And God, in his wisdom, has to kill the dream. Because by killing the dream, he fills us with, with, with what is right. He fills us with the ability to trust him, obey him, and follow him. See, to be what God really wants me to be, I have to realize what I'll never be. To be what God wants me to be, I have to realize who I'm not, and the only way to do that is to empty my hands of the dreams that I think life are about. That's why, by the way, in the Christian world, we call it dying to self, right? In, in the New Testament world, we see this eye of dying to the flesh, dying to self. We die to our trivial comforts. We die to the soul-shrieking inconveniences. We die to the arrogant preferences. We die to the self-centered entitlements. We, we, we die to the dream. We die to the dream about life so that only Christ remains. Number two, God kills the dream in order to build our faith. God kills the dream in order to build our faith. Here we see Joseph, and what God is doing is building his faith. Throughout this journey of 20-some years, God is preparing him for this moment. So God is building his faith. God is working in him. Now, if you follow the sports world, there's a lot of analogies in this way. Right? In the sports world, they'll say things like, a team is tanking. And what they mean is a team is giving up on the season to get a better draft pick. But then you'll have a general manager who will come out, and the general manager will say something like this. The general manager will say, hey, we're, we're, we're tanking, but trust the process. Trust the process. See, in life, it's so easy to tank without know, knowing the process. And so, so many people, their dream dies, and what they do is they end up continuing to lose. Right? They end up giving in to the situation. Joseph here could have given up the journey. Joseph here could have given up the situation. Joseph could have tanked his life. Don't we, when we look at our faith, we predicate our faith on life being easy. We predicate our faith on life being good, on our faith being strong. But what does God do? God kills the dream in order to actually build our faith. Why? Because God has a process. Trust the process. A process that knows a particular end. He knows what he's doing. This is, this is sanctification by losing. This is growing by tanking. Everyone who walks with the Lord experiences this, right? 
While there are seasons where you're filled with victories over sin, little bit of suffering, seemingly unhindered communion with God, there are also seasons filled with defeat and loss and affliction and silence, seasons where our dreams are shattered and our faith is shaken. And what happens? In those moments, it's so easy to tank. But God says, trust the process. Trust the process. Satan wants to crush us in those painful moments. God is actually building us. He is growing our character. He is building our faith. He's giving us ability to do what he's called us to do. God is taking us through a process. Why? Because God, God knows that a faith that has not been shaken will be a faith that will not stand when it is shaken. See, in order for faith to truly be grow, to grow, to, to be robust, it's got to be shaken. And a faith that has never been shaken will not be a faith that stands when it is shaken. And so the faith has to be shaken so that it can stand when it is shaken truly in life to, to bring us to an end, to build our faith stronger, to build a resistance for things that, that comes from the world. Here, here's the point. God has a process. And that process is to grow our faith. Joseph is proof of that. He would not have been ready for this moment in chapter 38. He would not have been ready for this moment in chapter 40. He would not have been ready for this moment. God knew the exact moment where his faith was ready for his brothers to show up. Trust the process. If you shortcut the process, you're going to shortcut the product. So many of us were like, I want this, I need this in my life, I need to be married, I need to have kids, I need to have a house. I need to have this. We, we, we shortcut the process, and what happens is it never brings the product we want. If you shortcut the process, you shortcut the product. Can I tell you, when I read chapter 45, I think this should be tattooed on our souls. It should be tattooed on our souls. Why? Because when you understand God is killing the dream to build my faith, then I don't buckle under the pressure. I don't buckle under times and seasons of the unknown. And I don't let my faith disappear. It actually grows stronger. Why? Because I know God has a process. God kills our dreams to build our faith. God kills our dreams to empty our hands of the things that take his place. And number three, God kills our dreams to fulfill his greater purpose. God kills our dreams to fulfill his greater purpose. Joseph here could have found a worthy cause to be about. Think about this. If he wanted to, he could have said, hey, you know what? My cause is going to be revenge on my brothers. He could have said in this moment, I am going to bring them into torture. I'm going to put them into prison. I'm going to throw them away. He could have actually played the victim card. I'm a victim. He could have been wounded. By the way, I, I hear this word a lot, wounded. I think we're, we get wounded over disagreements. Uh, by the way, there are people that are truly wounded, but we use these terms like they're loose. Oh, I've been wounded because someone disagrees with me, or I've been wounded because someone said something to me I didn't like, or I've been wounded because, no, no, that's not being wounded. That's just disagreement. But we are a culture of wounded souls. We're a culture of victims. Joseph could have played that card. If anybody deserved to do that, it was Joseph. Joseph actually could have been angry with God. He could have said, you know what my cause is? Is I'm going to go against God now because he's done this to me. He could have been angry in this moment, but what, what happened? He doesn't do that. By the way, notice. Notice verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Why? Because you sold me here. For God sent me. For what purpose? To preserve your life. 
Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father of Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house and ruler of all Egypt. You know what Joseph understood? Joseph understood his purpose. He states it, he affirms it three different times. See, Joseph was able to look past secondary causes to see God. He saw the Lord's hand governing, limiting, tailoring this circumstance to the best possible outcome to fulfill God's purpose to preserve life. See, Joseph didn't deal with his brothers the way every other person would have dealt with them. He dealt with them the way God would have dealt with them. Why? Because he knew the plan. He knew now that this was entirely God's plan, that God was preserving his people in a time of famine, and that Joseph had a purpose. Joseph was part of God's plan. This is exactly what we get to at the end of the story. At the end of the story, he's going to make this statement. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why? He's going to say it again. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, all of these moments, Joseph could have said, this is evil, this is evil, this is evil. But instead, he begins to see purpose in them. I mean, let me paint this picture, right? His brothers, evil. Potiphar's wife, evil. Uh, uh, cu the cupbearer, forgetting about him, evil. But what do we find? God, you are good in that. God, Potiphar's wife, who betrayed me and she falsely accused me, you are good in that. The cupbearer, forgetting about me for two years, God, you were good in that. See, what, what Joseph realizes is, is, wait, everything that looks like a bad plan, when we surrender to God, when he takes away everything from our hands so that he remains, now I understand the process that he's taking to me. He's building my faith. What happens? It's good. It's good, God. I see exactly what you're doing. I see what your plan is. I know the plan. You have a purpose in this moment. See, God was killing his dream to fulfill a better calling. God was killing his dream to fulfill a higher calling. God was killing his dream to bring him to a more fulfilling calling. Folks, God kills our dreams to bring us to his purpose. Why? Because our natural tendency is not to do his purpose. It's to do what we want. It's to do what we think is right. So God kills the dream to bring me to my purpose. God kills the dream to bring me to his calling. God kills the dream to fulfill a greater dream of his glory. As we end, I want to ask these three questions and let us ponder them together as we think about the fact that God is the dream killer, that God may be right now killing our dreams to fulfill a better purpose, a better calling. Three questions. Number one, is God emptying your hands to fill your soul? Is right now God emptying your hands of something? Maybe you're holding on saying, I want to hold on to this. And God is saying, let go, let go. And he's prying your fingers off of the thing that you're holding to in order to fill your soul with himself. Maybe God is pulling something back and you're saying, don't, 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 God, don't do that. And you're asking, and maybe God is just prying your fingers and saying, let me fill your soul with who I am. This is a moment of trust. This is a moment of faith. And he's prying your fingers, that thing that you hold dear, in order to say, trust me, trust me. He, he's, he's bringing you in. By the way, this is true all through the scripture. 
Almost every character goes through these moments. I mean, Abraham, Noah, Moses, Jeremiah the prophet, Peter. Remember Peter, I mean, he was like, I'll die for you. And what happened? God killed the dream in order to make him the leader of the church. The apostle Paul, remember God had to bring him to the road to Damascus and kill the dream about his religious authority. And God killed the dream by making him blind so that he would follow. God, all through the Bible, kills man's dreams to fulfill and bring them to places of emptiness and brokenness to prepare them for what he has ahead. Are you in a process right now where God is emptying your hands and he's saying, I want to fill your soul? Secondly, am I so fixated on my dreams that I'm no longer fascinated by God's providence? Am I so fixated on getting this thing, getting, having this provision, receiving this item that I'm no longer fascinated by the fact that God has already provided for me? If providence is provision, could it be that right now God is providing for you exactly what he wants you to have in this season? But if you're fixated on this dream, you're not seeing the provision of God in this moment. Are you so fixated on a dream that you're missing the providence of God in this moment? You're missing the provision of God right now. It may not be what you think it should be. It may not be enough for you, but it's exactly what God is bringing to you in this season, in this moment. Am I so fixated on my dreams that I'm no longer fascinated by God's providence. An easy word to see that is, if I ever say, if I only had this, I'll be fulfilled. That tells you everything you need to know. If I only had this, things would be better. And the last question, the last question, is the pursuit of my dreams overshadowing the purpose of God? Is the pursuit of my dreams overshadowing the purpose of God? Can I tell you, this is the, the progress of pain. The progression of pain is that if he wants, God wants to bring you to purpose, he uses pain to bring you to it. Why? Because then pain, you pursue God. And so is the pursuit of my dreams overshadowing the purpose of God? Am I so busy pursuing this dream, going after my dreams, that I'm overlooking God's purpose that he's calling me to right now? That purpose to be a good husband, a good wife, that purpose to be a good single that remains pure. That, that purpose to raise our kids to know the Lord. That purpose to work our jobs well in spite of the fact we may not like it. That, that purpose to, to be careful with our finances in order to prepare for what God has next. Right? Is God saying, listen, right now he's saying, are you pursuing your dreams and what you think it should be? Overshadowing the purpose of God right now in your midst to do what is right in front of you. We are called as a people of God to live for a great cause, not a great comfort. For Joseph, he realized that. That's why he could say, it was God who sent me here. It wasn't you. This was God. You thought it was evil, right? But God meant it for good. It is not you who sent me here. It's God who sent me here. Now, as we end, I want you to see this. This is a cycle. What Joseph actually, we find in the story of Joseph is this threefold cycle of growth. God empty me. God, fill my faith, fill me with faith, and God, use me. This is the cycle of our Christian lives. God, empty me, empty me of the dreams that are holding me back from you. God, fill me with your purpose, fill me with good faith that's going to trust you, obey you, and see you, and then God, use me. God, use me for your glory in this season of my life, whatever it is that you're asking me to do, maybe I'd be ready for it. God, empty me, God, fill me, God, use me. What is God emptying of? What is God trying to fill you with? 
What is God calling you into purpose for? That's the question of Genesis 45. Can I tell you, that's exactly the question in the picture that Jesus paints. I mean, Jesus, who emptied himself of glory, he emptied himself of the divine glory, and he came veiled in human flesh, and he lived on this earth for 30 and a half years. Yes, perfectly, but he veiled his glory. He lived perfectly. And then he was bruised, mocked, spin upon, beaten, and put on a cross. He, he was emptied. Sin was placed upon him. So he was filled with sin for us. And then it says, in the right moment, three days later, he, he was resurrected. And then he's given the, 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 the hand of the Father, right? The right hand of the, of the Father. He is, he's given a place of glory now. See, that God had a purpose in all of this pain. God had a purpose in this plan. He, he went from emptying to being filled with sin, to being filled with glory, to now being used as a purpose of the Father to save us. And if you're watching this and you don't know Christ, this journey, fill me, empty me, fill me, use me. Jesus models this. Jesus was emptied of his glory to be filled with our sin, to then be filled with the glory of the Father so that he can then be, have the purpose of saving our lives. This is the pattern. In our lives, God empties us to fill us with himself to now use us for his glory. And maybe for you, he's emptying you of yourself to say, I need Jesus. I need Christ. I need faith. Today would be the day that you accept Jesus Christ by faith. Maybe for you, you're walking through dreams that have been broken and dreams that have been shattered, faith that is shaking. And maybe today would be the day you say, God, empty me. God, fill me. God, use me. If you're like that, would you just, would you just click on the request prayer button? We'd love to pray with you. Maybe click on the request prayer button and, and share with us how we can pray with you. Just say, you know what, I, I, want, you, I want to know, uh, we want to know how we can pray for you. I, I want you guys to know this is what's going on in my life. I'm being filled right now. I'm being emptied right now. I, I want to be used by God right now. And maybe we can connect you as to how God can give you that purpose even through our church. So would you just press that button and say, I want to pray. I want to talk to somebody. Or maybe you'll just comment right there and say, you know what? God, empty me. God, fill me. God, use me. Why? Because God, you're killing my dream to bring me into a greater purpose. You're killing my dream to bring me into a greater calling. You're killing my dream to bring me into a life that lasts forever. Would you bow with me? as we pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Lord, in this season where we don't know what's happening, in this season where the news seems to be changing at every moment, in this season where we fully don't grasp all that's happening behind the scenes, we, we turn to a God that is both sovereign, all-powerful, and provident, all-providing. And we turn to you, and in the midst of Joseph's story, we're reminded that you provided exactly what you needed, what you desired what your glory entailed, that you emptied Joseph of his dreams, you emptied Joseph of, of himself, so that in this moment where his brothers come to find life, he doesn't say, hey, look at me, I've got it, you guys are bowing down to me, I told you so. But no, instead, he says it was you, God. See, his purpose wasn't for his brothers to bow down to him, his purpose was to have you be provident. His purpose was for you to use him to preserve people. So God, we thank you. You have a purpose in our lives. Well, that purpose that may be right in front of us now, I pray you'll empty us. Empty us of the dreams that we're holding to that aren't leading us anywhere. They're never going to satisfy. Empty us of the things that, that, so that only you remain. 
pry our fingers away. God, fill us, fill us with faith. Fill us with trust that we can say, God, we see you. God, we trust you. God, we obey you, you alone. And then God, use us. Use us for your glory. May we be instruments of the gospel. May we proclaim the good news that you emptied yourself, that you filled yourself with sin and then filled yourself with glory and the resurrection so that now you can save by your purpose. It's in your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, the Provident One. It's in your name. Amen.